Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. We'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing before we read that, that portion. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks that we may worship you now as we hear from your word. And we pray, Father, that our hearts would therefore be made open and humble, ready and willing to receive that which it is you have to say to us. Father, these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 21, starting at verse 22. Hear the word of God. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven new lambs of the flock apart and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven new lambs you will take from my hand that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Amen and may God bless his word to us. We were first introduced to Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. And um, we found out that much to Abraham's surprise, Abimelech is what the Jews later came to call a God-fearer. Remembering back at chapter 20, verse 11, Abraham said that he had lied to Abimelech concerning his wife because he thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. But God had spoken to Abimelech and Abimelech had responded in complete obedience to everything that God had commanded him to do. So Abimelech is not of the same bloodline as Abraham, yet Abimelech is one who has faith in God. And he believes in God in as much as God has revealed to him. And God had warned Abimelech that Abraham was a prophet, and that the prayers of Abraham and that the goodwill of Abraham would bring blessing upon himself. Now, I think we need to sort of look at what happens in verse 25 of our reading at chapter 21 as uh, what might be the background for this particular visit of Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army. Abraham has gone and lived wherever in the land he wanted to, as Abimelech had told him he could. And then Abraham has dug a well. Now, in a dry land where rains are seasonal, they come but twice a year to have a permanent source of water between the arrival of the rains from one season to another is basically incredibly important. 
especially if you are a man who keeps livestock. And we know from the descriptions of Abraham that God has blessed Abraham concerning his livestock. He has great flocks and herds. So this possession of a well of permanent water is extremely important. But it's not only important to Abraham. There are others to whom the possession of a well of permanent water is extremely important. And some of those others are apparently servants of this same king, Abimelech. At verse 25, we read, When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So what there has been is some kind of squabble, possibly a standoff, Possibly there was a bit of physical exchange over the well that Abraham dug. Remember, Abraham was a reasonably powerful man. He may not have been as powerful as King Abimelech, but he was able to earlier on go to war with four kings who had invaded the Valley of the Jordan, defeat them and rescue his nephew Lot and everyone who had been taken captive by them. He was able to raise from his own household over 300 fighting men, and he also had two allies who were named at that point in time. In other words, he's no small-time operator. He's, he's not someone, that, someone that, that the king could easily bully. So you're the king, you're Abimelech, and some servants come to you, and let's imagine they don't actually tell you the whole story. You know, servants often do these things. You know, you, you, you just tell enough to make your side of the story look good. And so some servants come to him who are in charge of some of his flocks and they said, you know, that Abraham's getting a bit big for his boots and uh, he claimed a bit of territory for his own. They don't even mention the well. He claimed a bit of territory for his own and we ended up having a, a fairly big argument with him which almost became a battle. And so Abimelech uh, calls in his chief of his um, armed services and says, we've got a bit of a problem. We've got this guy, Abraham. I know that he's a um, prophet and I know that his God is the only true God and that all the blessings that I receive, I'm receiving because of friendship with Abraham. Yet it appears that Abraham is causing trouble in our territory. We'd better go do something about it. Let's, let's try and set up some kind of... Um, Treaty with Abraham. We don't want this kind of trouble anymore. And so Abimelech takes Phicol, the commander of his army, and a king and a general aren't going to travel alone. You, could have, you, you would have to imagine there's some kind of bodyguard with them, some kind of group of disciplined and armed men who are able to fight, travelling with them, and goes and seeks out Abraham. Remember, the story as he's heard it, Abraham was getting a bit big for his boots. Abraham was setting aside a bit of territory within my own territory and saying that it was his own. I think that's what he's heard from his own servants. Because at verse 25, after, after Abimelech says, I want to be at peace with you, will you deal honestly with me? <laughs> I like that. Verse 23, now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me and with my descendants or with my posterity. Think about it. Why would he say that to Abraham? It's a little reminder. You know, a while back when I first met you, Abraham, you told me a whole lot of lies about your wife. 
And you didn't even try to stop me from taking your wife. And bad things would have happened if God himself had not intervened. Can you just be straight up honest with me now? I want you to be straight up honest with me and I want you to deal kindly with I want I want you to deal kindly with me and with my descendants. Interesting? Abimelech, God fearer. Not a part of the uh, promise of the people who received the promises, yet Abimelech is assuming one that Abraham is powerful and two that Abraham will have posterity who are powerful. Therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. He's saying this agreement between you and I, let it be an agreement between you and I and between our descendants. Abimelech is actually believing what he knows of the promises that Abraham had received. God had promised Abraham that Abraham would be the father of many nations and that kings would come from his loins and that nations would be blessed by the seed of Abraham. And Abimelech, realising that these promises have been made to Abraham, seeks to be reconciled with Abraham. Why would you do it? Because you believe what you've heard. You know, why did, for example, the prostitute of Jericho help the spies of Israel. She'd heard something about the promises of God. I'm not claiming that I know how much she believed, but she knew that God had promised these people that they would receive that land as an eternal inheritance and that from these people some kind of saviour was to come. And she thought, I believe those promises. I trust in their God. I trust in his power. I will be reconciled to these people because that is the way of blessing for me from the outside. Well, Abimelech is thinking along those terms. Abraham has received promises from God. I have met with and spoken with this God in a dream. I know that he is the true and living God and that all that he has promised will come to pass. Therefore, I will seek to be in an alliance with Abraham that will go down through the generations so that the blessings which are to fall upon Abraham are likely to fall also upon my offspring. You don't think that way unless you're thinking faithfully. You don't think that way unless you're believing what you have heard of the word of God. You know, people talk about... um, Believing in Jesus. Now it's good. It's good. Believing in Jesus, believing in God, these are definitely good things. But in this day and age and the way the people around about us think these days and the way they categorise things and separate things, it means almost nothing to have someone say they believe in Jesus. Because on one side, you know, and let's just reduce this to physical terms, though they are not necessarily accurate. It's just an illustration. On one side of the mind, they've got this little space, and in that little space, they say, whenever I'm in that little space, I believe in Jesus. But then with the rest of their mind, they're out there in the world, and whenever they're in that world space, they just go along with the flow. 
And so they've got this tiny little part of their brain where every now and then they sort of look within themselves and say, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. But it is having absolutely no influence on anything that they do. And so they live like worldlings. And they say, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. And at the same time, they live just the same as every other person around them. Take one word out of believe in Jesus and you get what's important. What word would that be? In. There are those who not only believe in Jesus, but they believe Jesus. They believe what Jesus has said. They believe what Jesus has commanded is worthy to be done. They believe the words of Jesus. And those people build their lives upon those words. And they're different to the world around them. Not only do they believe in Jesus, they believe the words and the commandments of Jesus and they accept the words that they hear from Jesus as the very words of God, which they are, and they build their lives accordingly. So believing in Jesus, good. It's got to be the starting point, I guess, of any relationship with God or any, any good relationship with God. You believe in Jesus. You believe in God as he has revealed himself. But the key to growth, the key to true Christian life, the, the key to being truly a Christian is not just believing in Jesus, but believing Jesus, believing his word, believing his commandments, believing that which he tells us. That's the key. Well, Abimelech, he believes in God, for God had spoken to him in a dream. And the first time God spoke to him, he did exactly what God had commanded him to do. And blessing had come. Abraham had prayed to God for Abimelech and Abimelech's household had been healed and children had started to come. Well, now he's going further in his life as a God-fearer. Now he's going further. God has made promises to Abraham. Abraham is God's, God's blessed prophet. The way that you get blessed when you're not of the family of Abraham is that you form an alliance with Abraham and he's formalising his alliance with Abraham. Now, at verse 25, it says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech, well, the word here that is um, translated in the ESV as reproved, it has a, a reasonably long meaning. Reproved, rebuked, investigated, sought out the truth of the matter. So here's an important thing. Here's an important thing. If you're seeking to establish a friendship, an alliance, if you're seeking to strengthen any relationship, how do you deal with troubles? How do you deal with issues? If you keep them under a cover, there's, there's two things you've got to be able to do. I'll put it another way. There's two things you've got to be able to do. You've either got to be able to completely let go of an issue, honestly, genuinely forget about it so that it no longer causes trouble. Or if you can't do that, if it's serious and if it cuts that deeply, you're going to have to bring it out into the open and let it be investigated. Let it be seen. Let it be known with the person with whom you have your dispute. We're not very good at it in today's world. 
the, you know, the, the internet, social media, I think, has made us very bad at it because people can just flame out anonymously on the internet, call people all sorts of name, make all, names, all sorts of vacu- make all sorts of crazy accusations, etc., etc., etc. I'm a warrior at the keyboard. And then as they walk down the street, they keep their head down and their hands in their pockets and, you know, they're as quiet as a mouse. Back in the day, if you wanted to talk to someone, you had to talk to them face to face. And if you got too insulting, well, you might just get a smack in the face. It sort of changes the way you relate to people. Abraham has a dispute with Abimelech about the water and he wants the truth brought out into the open. And look at Abimelech's reply. It's it's basically a three-time denial. Abimelech says, I do not know who has done this thing. So you see, I'm, I'm thinking that probably he knows there was some trouble and that the trouble is why he has come to try and formalise an alliance with Abraham, but that his servants haven't told him the truth. I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me. So he's saying, up until now, you haven't even spoken to me about it. Now, that's a rebuke in and of itself. He's saying to Abraham, you know, we could be having very friendly relationships. If you had sent a message to me that there was a problem, believe me, I would have done something about it. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. It's kind of a a threefold denial. I didn't give anybody orders to go out and steal your well of water. I honestly did not. If some of my servants have done this, this is the first I've heard of it, I'm going to do something about it. So... We have this alliance being cemented. Abraham straight up says, I will swear. As I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham brings up the point of issue. I dug a well. I dug a well. Your guys got pushy. You know, it was our labour. Before we got to this point, there was no water there. And then we put in the labour, we put in the work and... You know, just imagine the, the effort of digging down to the water table back in um, ancient days. You know, you didn't call in an ex- excavator with an auger. You know, dig a big hole, just keep digging, get it done in about six hours. You know, this is, this is serious, solid, hard labour. Pick and shovel kind of work, sweat of the brow kind of work. We dug a well, your guys took it. This is a big deal to me. I've got to, I've got to look after my livestock. Abimelech says, I'll get it sorted. There won't be trouble over this well ever again. So Abraham, satisfied with his assurances, takes sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. And then on top of what was obviously the normal standard covenantal agreement. Okay, it says he took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two men made a covenant. There must have been in that day, at that time, according to the customs of the land, a standard way of making a covenant that involved the exchange of a certain amount of beasts, a certain amount of wealth. And Abraham met the standards of whatever was required of that day and of that time. But then Abraham goes over the top. He goes further. 
He takes seven new lambs of the flock apart. He adds more to it. This is concerning the well. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven new lambs that you have set apart? And he said, these seven new lambs you will take from my hand and that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. He's basically saying, you accept this gift from my hands just as I accepted a gift from your hands back previously. You gave me a thousand pieces of silver and male servants and female servants, etc., etc., concerning Sarah in recognising that you were in the wrong. So I'm giving you a gift now. And every time you think about that gift, remember what I'm saying. I will give you these seven ewes and they will be a witness for me that I dug this well. That I have the claim to this water because we put in the labour, we got down to the water table, we did it. And then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Notice that Abraham is here worshipping God outside of the promised land. Outside, not within, but outside. He's not in Canaan. He's now worshipping other in another place, in a different area, in a different spot. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus to the woman of Samaria. Not just on this mountain or on any other mountain will you worship God, but people who are called will worship in spirit and in truth. He called there upon the Lord, the eternal God, and Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Proverbs 16.7 reads, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have troubles that you're not pleasing the Lord, by the way. But it's, it's a general rule. When you, when, you hear, when you read a proverb, don't take it as a literal word-for-word promise. That's not wise. Take it as a general rule. Generally... When you're living at peace with the Lord, you'll find that you're living at peace with the people around you, generally. But sometimes in the providence of God, that is not the case. Psalm 23.5 tells us, or in Psalm 23.5, the psalmist speaks of the Lord preparing a table before him in the presence of his enemies, his head being anointed with oil, his cup overflowing. Romans 12:18 If possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all If possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all My friends fights come our way battles come our way the world attacks the devil himself attacks troubles come our way you will you will often find that you are put in a corner where you simply cannot agree or submit with that which is demanded of you. That's the way it is for a Christian in the world. That's the way it is for a believer in the world. Battles come our way. But so far as it is possible, we are to live at peace with all. In other words, we're not to go looking for the battles. (laughs) We're not to go looking for troubles. There's enough 
Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof, said our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount. Speaking of worries and troubles, there's enough in every day. Just get yourself through each day. That's all you need worry about. Paul also says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Why was Abimelech king of the land in which Abraham was sojourning? God had put him there. Why is any king king of any land? Any ruler ruler of any land? Because God has put them there. What about a democracy where millions of people get to vote? God still puts the rulers in place. God still puts the rulers in place. If a nation has been given over to wickedness, whereby that nation votes for unrighteousness and wickedness, it's God who gave that nation over. It's God who put, who put forth the strong delusion that has a nation work towards its own destruction. There are many rulers in the world today that personally, I don't like them. The ruler of our nation today, I, I don't honestly think he's a good man. He thinks he's a good man. He, he thinks he's a good man. His ideology makes him think he's a good man. He's filled with religious self-righteousness because of his ideology. He would tell you that he is doing the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But all the evil men of the world have claimed to be doing the greatest good. Hitler claimed that he was advancing the theory of evolution and improving the bloodstock of mankind. Stalin claimed that he was applying science to humanity and making things better for the great mass of the Russian people. And Chairman Mao made the same claims. And they killed millions upon millions upon millions of people. They starved them to death. They tortured them to death. They put them in prisons and worked them to death or gulags. They worked them to death. They all claimed to be doing the greater good. The fool that this day is at the head of our government. He subscribes to the theory that the world's population must be reduced by around about 50% for the greater good. Well, what does that mean? Well, how do you reduce the world's population by around about 50% other than by killing people or by rendering people infertile by vast numbers? These aren't good things. This is not according to God's plan for humanity. The commandment of God is that he made them male and female and he said to them, go out into the world and fill it. In other words, male meets female, the union is fertile and children are born. The image of God is born to you. Fill the world with my little images. Take dominion over the world with my little images. That's God's command. It hasn't stopped. The command that Jesus gave that we are to go out into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of the nations is just a fulfilment of that original command. It's a, it's a refining of it. It's within the same area. God now says, I want the nations filled with my images, not just physically, not just children, but I want it filled with the spiritual image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which only the preaching of the gospel can bring about because it's in the preaching of the gospel that life is granted to the elect and they are given the new life. They are reborn. They are born again. They are made into a new people, a new nation. 
That's according to the commandment of God. Anyone who claims that for the greater good, half the population of the world should be put to death or made infertile is a rebel against the living God, is a hater of the living God, is one who loves evil, not that which is good. And it makes no difference whether or not they think they're doing good. You know, there were, there were guys, you know, they got into aeroplanes filled with people who were going about their daily lives and they flew them into buildings. For many of us here, it's the most traumatic scene you ever thing that you ever saw on your TV screen. Ask them, were you doing good? And they would have said, yes, we're doing good according to the will of our God. This is good. The victory of Islam all over the world by killing the unbelievers. It's good. All right. We've become so afraid of calling things what they are. What is good? God's commandments are good. What is good? That which God intends for the world is good. What is good? The way that God has revealed himself in his creation is good and the way that creation is supposed to give glory to God is good. What is good? Honouring the Son just as we honour the Father, honouring the Lord Jesus Christ just as we honour God the Father, that is good. Who defines good? God defines good. Who tells us what is good? God tells us what is good. Where does he tell us what is good? He tells us what is good in his good word, the Holy Scriptures. God rules and reigns over all things. Are there wicked rulers in the world? Yes, there are. Are there fools who've sold themselves out to evil, though they in their own minds think, oh, I'm doing such wonderful good? Yes, there are. Do they get power in different parts of the world at different times? And the answer is, yes, they do. Why? Because God puts them there. Why? Because it's for the glory of God that he raises men up and it's for the glory of God that he drags men down. It's for the glory of God that he builds kingdoms up. It's for the glory of God that he crushes them down. The Pharaoh who refused to hear the word of God through the ten plagues upon Egypt, what did God say to him? I built you up, I'll drag you down, and I'll do it for my glory. And so a nation like ours has many wicked rulers who are in rebellion against the living God, who hate the living God, who call good evil and who call evil good. How would they do that, for example? Well, for example, try and get any politician to find the fortitude and the backbone to actually say that murdering unborn babies is evil. Just try and get one to actually make a clear moral statement concerning the murder of unborn babies. Oh, well, you know, a person's got to have rights and there's always a balance between rights and responsibilities. And, you know, it's an arguable point as to whether or not that unborn child is actually a real life as of yet. And, you know, you've got to think of the poverty and the pressure that the woman's under and blah, 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 blah. Weasel words, slimy weasel words. And after all, the woman's got the right to equality, hasn't she? You're killing a baby. Tell me when that's good. Just tell me straight when that's good. Tell me where in the Holy Scriptures I can find somewhere that tells me that God thinks that's good. Okay? Evil. 
It's evil. Although they're calling that evil good. Pretend homosexual marriage. Pretend lesbian marriage. Find one of our leaders that's actually got the guts, the backbone, the moral fortitude to speak the truth. It's not a marriage unless it's a man and a woman given to each other with covenantal promises, loving one another as God has commanded. It might be a relationship. It might be a bad imitation. But it's not a marriage unless it's a marriage according to the pattern and the commandment of God. Find one politician in this wide brown land. Sometimes it's green. Find one politician in this wide brown land who's got the guts to actually speak that truth. You'll look hard. You'll look hard. Evil. They call good evil. They call evil good. They decree iniquitous decrees. They make stupid laws. First of all, they say that pretend marriage is real marriage. And then they say that you must pretend that pretend marriage is real marriage and that you must not say things against against our pretended but slash real marriages. But guess what? Who put them in power? God. According to his will, according to his plan, according to his design. Our nation has drifted far, far, far from the word of God. And that drift began some time ago and it began in our churches. It began in our churches. I, my guesstimate is that in terms of people who attend churches where the scripture is taught as the word of God and where people actually strive to be truly obedient churches, my guess is that now in Australia we're probably speaking of only 2% of the population. I realise that a slightly higher percentage is involved in general church attendance, but now I'm talking about churches where the scriptures are brought to the people as the word of God, something that ought to be heard and something that ought to be obeyed. I'm thinking you're looking at around about 2% of our nation. The percentage was different back in the day. 1955, percentage of the population of Australia attending church regularly, 55%. I know they weren't all attending good churches. I know they weren't all attending churches where the truth was preached. But if it's 55% of the general population who were involved in some kind of organised worship, you've got to guess that there was probably 20% of the population were actually being taught the scriptures as the word of God and, and, and had some kind of genuine Christian faith. And from that moment on, it's just slid downhill. You, you can get the statistics from, from the ABS on the, on the internet and look at the numbers. Down it goes, down it goes, down it goes. What happened? Well, it come to the point where there were only one or two seminaries or Bible colleges in Australia who were training men faithfully, who were teaching men to minister the word of God as the word of God with respect for the word of God. And they were teaching them all kinds of liberal theology and drivel and nonsense. Why is our district filled with empty chapels? They're all over the place if you don't know it. You know, that... that that place in the middle of town that is now a photography gallery, 
That was a Methodist church. Where we, where we used to live at Calcite, just up the road at a place called Rocky Plains, there was a Methodist chapel. In Berrydale, there was a Methodist church. It's now a house. There are shut down Anglican chapels or at least basically disused Anglican chapels out and around about the countryside. All over the place. Gone. Gone. The word was not faithfully proclaimed to the people of the nation. And the people were given over to wickedness and evil. To sin. Straight out sin. And here's the thing. When you're given over to, you know, what's, what's the first result of giving yourself over to sin? What do you get when you give yourself over to sin? You get more sin. The power of sin only increases. The man who sins is a slave to his sin. The nation that sins becomes a slave to its sin. God handed over Australia to its own wicked desires and ultimately, the politicians who are downstream from the society, ultimately they reflect the wishes of our society. They reflect the wishes of our people. And so what is our message to all of Australia? You want things to be set right? You know, it's interesting. I, I, my work takes me all over the countryside and a lot of people aren't, aren't happy. They're not happy. You know, people in cities being told to cut back the electricity usage in the middle of winter, they're not happy. People in cities are being, uh, you know, and, and, and our town, by the way, paying very high fuel prices and they're not happy. Getting harder and harder to live. Things aren't going the way they think they should be going. They're not happy. Well, what's our answer? Well, if you want wise rulers, you yourself need to repent of the foolishness and the wickedness of your sin and start living according to wisdom. Living according to the commandments of God. Living according to the word of God. Living according to faith in Jesus Christ. There is no single politician that we're going to vote into power who's going to turn it around. It's not going to happen. They come along and they promise everything and they deliver nothing because they're compromisers. Because in the end they start talking about the greater good. Not good as defined by God, but good as defined by themselves and how they can do the most, the best for the most. Where our politicians are today only reflects the standards of our societies around about 20 years ago when their characters were being formed. You hear what I'm saying? Around the, those people who sit in Parliament today, those people who are at the heads of departments today, around about 20 years ago, their characters were being formed in our society. Okay? And the decisions they're making are according to what they were taught, confirmed in, given over to, cemented into 20 years ago in the system. Okay? So you want the whole system to turn around? And look, I want good things for Australia. I really do. Well, what's it going to take? Generations. It's going to take generations to turn the boat around. Why? Well, you see, we've got to go out into the world and make disciples. 
We've also got to go out into the world and make little images of God and take dominion and fill the world with them. And we've got to actually raise those children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There's a number that really needs to be turned on its head. What's that number? Well, at the moment, the number of child retention for the church is around about 10%. For every 100 kids that the church gets through the normal relationship of a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, basically only around about 10 of them are maintained in the faith. The moment they grow up, the moment they move out of the family, they're gone. They don't come back. We need to reverse that. So the church itself needs to repent of its failure to fight for our own children. We need it to be that one in ten that disappears. And basically we're holding the the nine of ten that God gives us. That in itself would make an enormous difference. That in itself would make an enormous difference. We've got to fight for our children spiritually fight for our children. Understand something, the government is not our friend. And, you know, no disrespect to the school teachers present. The state system is not our friend. It's just not. We've got to fight for our children. And we've got to basically raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord teaching them not only to believe in Jesus, but teaching them to believe Jesus. And we could turn it around. It'll take generations if the Lord gives us time. If he's willing, it can be done. Through preaching the gospel and through the raising of children, godly children, it can be done, but it's going to take a generations-long determination. Just repeating the pattern again and again and again of teaching and preaching the word of God, of leading people through one means or another to faithfulness and obedience to Jesus, believing his words, obeying him. And then you'll get rid of wicked and foolish leaders. But remember, remember what I'm saying about generations. The leaders of our political parties The heads of our government departments, they were formed 20 years ago. So we need enough Christians raising godly children and discipling godly people so that eventually 20 years into the present, from that time, we start to exert genuine godly influence through the politics of our nation. The long-term plan is the only plan that works. Yes, God may grant an almighty revival. He has done these things in times past and I would love him to do it now. But as I can't give you a calendar date for when the almighty revival might or might not start, I can tell you that we as God's people have God's commandments to obey and that in obeying these commandments, slowly but surely we can work change. All right, the tide can come in. The river can run higher. My friends, though we are ordered 
to live at peace with our with our with the world around about us so far as it is possible. Though we are ordered to be subject to governing authorities, remember all of these things, they're coming from God. There is no authority except from God. We have wicked rulers because God voted them in. How's that for a shock? God voted them in. You say, why did he vote them in? Well, if God chooses to discipline a nation and or bring a nation down, that's why he voted them in. Fear God and obey his commandments, my friends. What else can I say to us? Abraham, as far as was possible, sought to live at peace with the world around about him. And Abimelech was wise enough to understand that he had to be at peace with God through being at peace with the people of God for blessing to come his way. Abraham and Abimelech, it's a picture of negotiations between the people of God and the people of the world just in a microcosm, one man negotiating with another man. But the principles apply. The principles apply. It's one of those small things that you can take and apply it to the big things. So let us remember that and let us seek to be obedient and faithful servants of Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your mercy and your grace and for your holy scriptures, for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we who are those who would claim that by faith through believing in Jesus have received forgiveness, but also by faith believing Jesus act obediently to your will in the world around us, showing by the way we live that which is good and that which is evil, that people may look upon us and know that we are the people of the living God. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.